0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hello, it's Richard Aidey here with The Money. For reasons that will quickly become apparent, I'd love to play you a bit of Nat King Cole doing Mona Lisa, but we don't have the rights to it. And what we do have the rights to is this. The Mona Lisa is probably the world's most famous painting. It's difficult, just about impossible actually, to see it in the Louvre because of all the other people wanting to see it. But in a way that doesn't matter because such is its fame that you do not have to have seen it to know exactly what it looks like. Which is why I was intrigued when Callum Williams, senior economics writer at The Economist, compared the Leonardo da Vinci masterpiece to the global economy.
2: Mona Lisa has this reputation for being a painting where you can look at it on one day and it looks a certain way, particularly Mona Lisa's smile. But then you look the next day or even the next minute and the smile looks a little bit different. And it's been one of the things that's like that kind of everyone knows about the Mona Lisa and it's vexed art historians for a long time. And what we argue in this piece is that the world economy at the moment is a bit like the Mona Lisa because whenever you look at the global economy, On one day, it looks a certain way, and on the next day, it looks a different way. And the piece tries to explain kind of why that is.
1: Yeah, I thought it was rather illuminating. One of your examples is the number of times the word uncertainty is used in economic reports, like the IMFs.
2: Yeah, so that's one way that this Mona Lisa effect sort of materializes. So basically, no one knows what's going on, to put it bluntly. So you know, economists kind of cover their tracks by saying the outlook's very uncertain. What they really mean to say in a sense is there's so many moving parts right now. We have a war in Europe, we have supply chain crises, we have inflation. We have the world economy flirting with recession. All those things add up to a situation where no one really knows what's going on. And sometimes you have a situation where people say, actually, the data coming in looks kind of okay. I think, I think we've got inflation beat. And then literally the next week, those same people will be like, oh, didn't like the data released today. Inflation looks like it's a bit of a problem, and you get this back and forth constantly.
1: Yeah, and many economists, of course, are employed to come up with, well, to come up with forecasts. So forecasting gets harder.
2: Yes, and you can see that also in the data. So if you look, for example, uh, if if you take all the forecasts for the US economy, Obviously, in normal times, there's a bit of a range of forecasts where some people will expect strong growth and some people will expect slightly less strong growth or whatever. What we're seeing at the moment is that the range of forecasts is really wide. So some people think that the economy will do quite well and some people think the economy will do quite badly. Uh, And so in in a sense, forecasting has become even more difficult than it normally is.
1: Which has an effect, of course, or an impact at least on governments and businesses in, in trying to plan to kind of make provision for the future.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's that's why we have statistics about the economy because they are supposed to guide what the government does and guide what businesses do. And, you know, clearly forecasting is an inexact science and, you know, forecasters get it wrong all the time and stuff. But kind of knowing roughly where you are and roughly where you're going is actually extremely useful. And it's also, by the way, just useful for people trying to get a sense of, you know, just trying to keep up with the news. So when forecasting breaks, it's kind of amusing in a sense, but it also has real costs.
1: Indeed. So this volatility we know obviously has to do with the war in Europe and supply chains and the energy crisis and more recently the banking hiccups in the US and in Europe but but there's also something else in this that you've identified can you tell us what's happened to seasonal adjustments
2: okay <laughs> yeah i mean it sounds a bit a bit boring in a sense and i mean maybe some people will find it a bit boring but essentially what happens with with any economic data Is that the statisticians apply these things called seasonal adjustments, which basically accounts for the fact that certain things are more likely in winter to occur and certain things are more likely to occur in the summer. So, for example, what you often see in the run up to Christmas really across the world is that there's a big increase in employment because, you know, restaurants take on more staff, uh, shops take on more staff for the Christmas rush. Now that doesn't represent like a genuine increase in, in employment. It's like a temporary thing. And so what uh, the statisticians do is they correct for that. And they basically, they sort of smooth it out uh, when they look at the numbers. So you, so you can a- adjust for the seasonality. Hmm. Now, the problem we've had, and this is a big problem, obviously, in Australia too, is that over the past three years, we've gone from lockdowns so then end of lockdowns. And so the economy has gone from crashing to soaring kind of again and again. And that's occurred at different times of the year. And so what it's basically done is the seasonal adjustments have been totally messed up. And what that means is that you can have a single number, for example, of US inflation. yeah, And if you look at one seasonal adjustment, US inflation looks like it's on the way down. You look look at another seasonal adjustment and it's basically as high as it's ever been. And who knows? Who knows which number's correct? No one does, really.
1: Actually, I think the last time we spoke, it it looked like inflation wasn't going to be the the terrible burden, but things have changed since then. And I think they've changed more than once, uh, Callum. Now, another change you've spotted, which I find really interesting, has to do with sample size. So the number of people filling out questionnaires. How, how has that played into this?
2: Yeah, so basically for any, any economic data about basically pretty much anything, so unemployment rate or GDP growth or whatever, uh, that's constructed often with the help of surveys. So people get sent surveys to fill in either by phone or in the, in the mail post or on the internet or whatever. And what happened during the pandemic was that many people stopped responding to those surveys. And no one really knows why. Some people think it's because people, you know, weren't in work so often. So maybe they weren't being reached by, te- by phone as easily. And then some people would say, oh, well, you know, there was a lot more distrust in government during the during the pandemic. And so people didn't want to respond to the surveys anymore. So no one really knows why, but, but the upshot is clearer. And what has happened is that the sample sizes are smaller. And it seems to be the case that it's making the samples more biased. So what's basically happened is that people who are richer, were less likely to stop responding to the surveys. And so what that's basically meant is that, for example, with income, income's gone up uh, in the surveys, even though it didn't necessarily actually go up. It's just gone up because there's more rich people responding and fewer poor people. So that's one problem. But you've you've got this problem across a range of different surveys. And it means that when you're looking at the numbers that, that these surveys produce, you have to ask yourself, well, what's really going on here? Is this a genuine change? Or is this just the survey sample that's changed?
1: So two two issues. One is that the data is less robust, but the other thing is, if anything, it's skewing a particular way.
2: That's the concern, yeah. But then there's the third thing, which is also a big concern, which is basically to do with how people feel about the economy. So again, when economists look at the economy, they look at sort of hard data. So it's like, How many people applied for unemployment benefits this week? And that's a number that's kind of objective. Yeah. But then they also look at the more subjective data, which is like, how do people think the economy is doing? How do they think the economy will do in the future? Do they feel good about the economy? And what's happened to that soft data is it's gone in completely the opposite direction from hard data. So basically, to oversimplify a little bit, hard data is pretty good. The economy is doing quite well. But if you ask people how the economy is doing, they say the economy is doing terribly. So there's a question, which one do you believe? Do you believe the hard data or do you believe the soft data? Yeah.
1: And well, as you point out, mostly they're more or less in the same direction, aren't they?
2: Well, normally they are. Normally they correlate very nicely. So they both give the same signal, but that's not the case anymore. So the question is, why is that? And again, no one really knows for sure. I think one thing that obviously has happened in the past year, year and a half is that inflation has gone up a lot. And, you know, I think what we've discovered, as many people have said for a long time, is that people really, really, really hate inflation. They just absolutely hate inflation. And so even if objectively, they're doing okay, they don't feel as if they're doing okay. And so they'll respond to these surveys in a very negative way.
1: It's there's sort of a grumpiness factor, really.
2: Yeah, exactly. And just a sort of general doom and gloom factor, which, you know, you see that in surveys, other surveys where people say to, for example, Americans, do you feel happy? And there's far fewer people today, even compared with last year, who say they feel happy. So there's something that quite fundamental that's changed in the kind of global psyche over the past year.
1: So, So, Callum, at the moment, we don't know when this disparity between hard and soft data will, will narrow or, or when people will get back to answering surveys that, that the statisticians need or when the seasonal adjustments might settle down. So so what happens in the meantime?
2: Well, in the meantime, not much apart from it's just really hard to know what's going on, which is not very satisfying. Uh, as I, th- I think we'll probably be there for a while, to be honest. I mean, in a few years' time, perhaps the seasonal adjustment thing won't be such a problem and and so forth. I think one solution that is making some progress is that economists are able to look at other kinds of data that are not quite so affected by these problems. So for example, you can look at what people are doing with their credit card spending, Mm. Uh, obviously anonymized data, but you say on average, what are people doing with their credit cards? And that gives a sense of kind of how they feel about the economy, but they have their own problems. So I think At least for now we're going to be in this weird situation where basically to put it bluntly no one really knows what's going on with the economy
1: yeah i haven't interviewed too many economists who've actually said that though i have to say
2: well i think what we can do is we can have a sense of general trends and also we can have a sense of kind of turning points so you know if you look at again the credit card data for example when the pandemic struck you could see that really clearly in the credit card data so that was a big sudden mm. drop off but i think what has become more difficult is kind of talking about the economy in real time and sort of narrating the economy how's the economy doing right now those kind of questions have become a lot more difficult so there's you know there's loads of work that economists can do that's really useful it's that kind of like those monthly weekly updates that have become more difficult i think yeah
1: Callum, really interesting. And I will never think about the Mona Lisa quite the same way again. Thanks very much for joining (laughs) us today. Thanks for having me. Callum Williams from The Economist. The federal budget is almost upon us. Obviously we'll have a lot more to say about it in a couple of weeks. The reason i mention it now is that the treasurer jim chalmers has talked about well-being quite a bit and at the moment treasury is putting together its measuring what matters statement which will lay out the government's well-being measures later in the year other countries are further down this road and wales has probably gone the furthest in 2015 it passed the well-being of future generations act which among other things requires public bodies to think about the long-term impact of their decisions and to work to prevent problems like poverty climate change and health inequalities. The law also established the position of Future Generations Commissioner for Wales, and the first holder of it is Sophie Howe, who recently completed her term. Sophie, welcome to the money. Who decided what would be important for future generations?
0: So, in developing the legislation the government worked with uh, a range of non-profits and one in in particular to hold a national conversation with the citizens of Wales and uh, it was called The Wales We Want and the question posed was what's the Wales you want to leave behind to your children your grandchildren and, and future generations to come and that was a range of you know from anything from town hall meetings online platforms, engagement with youth groups, participation by the Women's Institute who ran their own Um, exercises throughout all of their members. Some of our local towns and cities ran their own versions of the Swansea we want or the Llanelli we want and all of that information was gathered together and the people of Wales came up with about 13 principles of things that they felt were important things they wanted to leave behind to future generations and they were things like um, we want to make sure that Wales is fairer, Um, we want to make sure that we're protecting our rich natural resources to pass that on we think that our culture, our heritage, our language. Which are really important things to pass on to the next generation. And at the time, the UN Sustainable Development Goals were in development, so the government looked at what the people of Wales had said, what was happening at a UN level, and came up with seven wellbeing goals based on on both of those those things. And these are long-term goals for Wales, the vision of the Wales that we want to leave behind.
1: So that's, that's uh, you've already touched on them, but prosperity, resilience, being healthier, being more equal, Having cohesive communities, having that vibrant culture and a thriving Welsh language and, and being globally responsible. That's that's the seven. That's isn't right. It? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And what what is clear from from what you've just been saying is that this was this was this idea, this process was taken up enthusiastically by the Welsh people. It wasn't just left to the usual suspects of government and think tanks and NGOs.
0: Yes, absolutely right. And I think that's of critical importance in terms of that mandate. If you're going to set a long term vision for a country, which I always think it's bizarre that, you know, it's really unique. (laughs) There's no other country in the world that has a long term vision set out in law. Um, You'd think that a country would have, but they don't, because we work on short term electoral cycles. But if you're going to do that, it's really important the citizens of Wales are going to buy in to that and they feel this ownership. And and I think perhaps that's some of the challenge with implementing the Sustainable Development Goals uh, locally and you know within um, the, the member states, whether that's Australia, whether that's the UK, there's not really this sense of connection back to the SDGs. But if you can take the SDGs and localise them and make them relevant to your country, your area, then they're going to get that buy-in. And of course, one of the things that was added in the Welsh approach was these concepts around culture, heritage, language, which are actually missing from the UN SDGs. Mm. And um, that's a mistake, I think.
1: It is really interesting hearing you talk about it because, as you will know, the Australian government says it wants to put well-being at Mm -hmm. the heart of uh, of our budgets. And, of course, the next one is due in May. Mm -hmm. But at the moment, the Australian people haven't had a lot of choosing what matters.
0: Mm, mm. And I think that is a challenge that the government will need to address. So I think it's really exciting that the government are moving in this direction, that the Treasurer has made this commitment to uh, well-being budgeting. but. I do think it's critically important to ask people, so what is it that matters to you? And to give people the time and the space to think about that, and also to perhaps help them and equip them with some of the skills they might need to think and the knowledge they might need to have about what might be coming down the track at us, because we can all be caught up in our, you know, what's immediately in front of us, our own, you know, backyard, if, if you like, or our own sort of environment. But there are some big issues that we need to be considering so obviously climate change but the impact of automation and artificial intelligence on the way that we live and work and um, how we're going to manage with an aging population what about the rises in poor mental health particularly amongst our, our young people and those are all issues and you know future trends and scenarios that we need to help people as well to to think and almost put themselves in the future and how might they want to be responding to those issues now so that their children and grandchildren have the best possible chances.
1: As you were saying before that this became a sort of statutory thing in Wales, it's in the law effectively. It's in the law, yeah, which is what makes it unique. I don't think the government's talking about that here at the moment, it's just they're putting wellbeing in the budget but I don't think anybody's talking about putting it in the law. So it's not the same level of commitment.
0: No, it's not. It's a um, a reasonable start. But I think the lessons that we've learned in Wales is a law is incredibly powerful. It's not the be all and end all, because even though it's a law, I actually describe it as the biggest cultural change programme Wales and I'd argue probably any country has ever seen. So requiring our institutions not only to demonstrate how they're actively taking steps to reach these long term goals, but how they're considering the long term impact of all their decisions, how they're preventing problems from occurring or getting worse, how they're integrating so getting outside of their departmental or organisational silos and having this sort of cross-pollination uh, of ideas and actions and delivering public services, working together and then involving citizens, those are all principles set out in our law. And the fact that it applies not just to the government but all of our main public institutions and increasingly even those outside of the public sector, so our private sector, our voluntary sector, nonprofits, and so on, are adopting the framework of the Future Generations Act because they're saying actually we have this vision for Wales so we all know where we're going. We can be part of a Team Wales approach to taking the action in our domain mm. to help us to get towards this vision of Wales, for Wales.
1: For the corporates in particular of course it's going to be part of the social licence to operate isn't it? What has your role involved because what it isn't? is you being a kind of future cop and saying actually that's not futurey enough and I'm going to compel you to change things you you didn't have that power
0: so no I couldn't force anyone to do anything or stop anyone doing anything. So my role as set out in the law is to be the guardian of the interests of the future generations of Wales, which sounds like something out of a Marvel comic, doesn't it? It does. uh, (laughs) um, I can assure you I don't don't wear a a, a cape (laughs) and I don't have magic powers. I sometimes wish that I did, but essentially what it means is sort of being the voice of future generations and being an advocate or the conscience, if you like, of of future generations. And there's quite um, a power in the kind of of the soft power, if you if, if you like, around that. So one of the first tests of the legislation was government plans to build a 13-mile stretch of motorway to deal with the problem of congestion on one of our, our major motorways, and they were intending to spend the entire of the Welsh government borrowing capacity on building this road. And I intervened in that decision and I asked the government quite simply to show me their workings. Please explain to me how you've considered the goal of a more prosperous Wales, which actually doesn't reference GDP, talks about a productive, innovative, low-carbon society, one which uses resources efficiently and proportionately and acts on climate change. Mm. I asked them to explain to me how it was in line with the goal of a resilient Wales, which is about our ecological resilience, because the plans were to go through a nature reserve, how it was in line with the goal of a healthier Wales. We already have illegal levels of air pollution. So how is adding another road to that going to help? How it's in line with the goal of a more equal Wales, 25% of the lowest income families in that area don't own a car. So are we going to be spending the entire of our borrowing capacity on a scheme that benefits the already better off? And put simply, they couldn't really answer those questions and you know this played out publicly it played out in the media it played out in a public inquiry and it was widely regarded to be a done deal because whenever there's an argument you know which is pitched economy versus environment economy always wins and environment always loses and that's why you play that out in millions of decisions uh, at every level in government across every country in the world and that is why we have a climate emergency and so it was widely regarded that it was a done deal it was going to go ahead but the First Minister changed his mind. He stopped the road being built um, on the basis of the arguments that I'd put and instead set up a commission to look at how would we deal with the problem of congestion um, if we were applying this well-being lens, if we were aiming to achieve improved health, equality, environmental outcomes and so on.
1: This is The Money with me, Richard Adie. My guest is Sophie Howe, who's recently finished her appointment as the very first Future Generations Commissioner for Wales. So, Sophie, a big part of the role of scrutinising, assessing government policy, including the budgets, and I know in COVID with the emergency measures, you had key inputs there, but it's also that constructive criticism, isn't it? It's not just saying you shouldn't do that. It's saying, well, perhaps you should think about doing this.
0: Yes, absolutely. And um, one of the statutory duties of the Future Generations Commissioner is to uh, publish every five years something called the Future Generations Report. It's specifically time to land the year before the next parliamentary elections in Wales, with the idea that it should influence the uh, political election pledges for the parties going into the election. Uh, and so the first Future Generations Report, uh, my report was published in, in 2020. And and what we've seen since then is um, the two major political parties in Wales, Labour and, and Plaid Cymru. Over 50% of their manifestos, their election pledges, were things that were featured as my recommendations. And we've just done a, a mapping of how that has actually played out now in terms of the program for government for Wales. And about 60% of uh, the recommendations that I made are now in train in the program for government. And some of those things are really progressive things. Like a universal basic income pilot, um, like um, stopping building roads and having a new transport strategy, like investment, uh, much greater investment in climate change, like targeting our skills programmes for the green economy towards those furthest from the labour market to women and black and Asian minority ethnic people who we want to have a really good opportunity to have access to these high-quality jobs. So there's some really progressive things starting to happen in Wales.
1: Mm, I'm impressed that this is happening not because the office has a power to compel but to have a public conversation. So you were the first in the role, Mm -hmm. you've just finished, what would yeah. you say to the Australian government about the need for a similar position here? And I should say, we actually get an intergenerational report, which is done by Treasury mm-hmm. every five years. This, that is mm-hmm. due later in the year. It has not tended to do a lot of shaping of <laughs> policy up till now.
0: No. And I think that is the challenge. Governments love a strategy. They love a report. They love a a framework or a set of metrics. And, you know, those things have their places. But actually, this is about changing the hearts and minds of the way that we do business in uh, public policy, politics and governance. This is about um, finding the people who are what I describe as the frustrated champions. So these are people who are in every reorganisation who've been able to see for a long time that there's a better way of doing things. They might be the social workers who've seen generation from generation of families coming into the care system because we've never got up front and tackled the real issues in those families. They might be the engineers who are being asked to build yet another road knowing in 15 years' time that road will be just as full as the one um, that they've just extended and so on. So these people are having the permission of a legislative framework giving them that permission to go and wave a piece of law at the people who don't want to change and who want to maintain the status quo, that is incredibly powerful. And it has to have ownership um, right across government. So if I were to start somewhere in government, I would say that the Treasury is a sensible place to, to start. And actually, our act, although it covered all of government, the lead minister was our finance minister in the first instance. And you know, that was quite helpful. But it does have have to permeate every aspect of what government and the rest of um, public services are doing to have that significant impact.
1: So if we're serious here, would you say we need to have a similar process to the one you went through in Wales, where we're all invited to be part of this and we all, uh, as many of us as possible, give feedback on what we want the future generations to, to have here and what we want Australia to be?
0: I think that's critically important because this is the gift of current generations in Australia to those yet to be born. This is the vision that they have for them, and that has to be co created with the public. Now, I know that the government have put in place some uh, resources where individual MPs can go off and hold consultations with their communities and so on. But our experience in Wales is that really needs to be coordinated. There really needs to be an in-depth response or approach to how we're getting to citizens whose voices are, are seldom heard. So they they might be first generation people, they might be, um, you know, young people who don't tend to engage in these sorts of, you know, high-level government consultation processes and so on. And their voices are absolutely critical. So I would say to the government, you know, well done on getting to this um, stage and it's a brilliant and progressive move but i think that there quite a number of public policy um, organizations and you know and i've been brought here from wales by the center for policy development they are one of the organizations who are saying let's make this a first step but let's commit to a national conversation to really frame the detail of what these well-being goals should look like
1: Certainly, if we do that, and our experience is similar to the one you had, that idea will be, well, perhaps not at first, but I think embraced with some enthusiasm.
0: I think so. And it also helps people to think more broadly. And it also, you know, thrashes out a public debate on what do we want the future to look like? Because people don't often get that space to think about that. You know, we're caught up in the, you know, this new buzzword, the poly crisis that we exist in at the moment. There's wars and conflicts and, you know, the, the aftermath of COVID and the cost of living crises and, and all of these different things. But actually, if we're able to find a moment as a country to step out of that and say, OK, Where do we actually want to be? Where do we want to be in 50 years time, for example? Where might we want to be in 100 years time? That enables us to then start thinking, Okay, how does that frame the decisions that we need to take today with that long term in mind? Mm. And um, our first generation, you know, indigenous people are actually really, really good at that. The Arokes, for example, have this seventh generation principle. The decisions that they take, they test them. How will they play out in seven generations time? And that's what all of us need to be doing, because we need to recognise that the planet is not just here for us to use abuse and trash Um, The planet is here just for the time that we're on it and we have a duty to protect it for those yet to come.
1: Sophie, it's been really interesting talking to you. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you. Sophie Howe finished her term as Future Generations Commissioner for Wales earlier this year. That's it for now. One of the most famous quotes in economics comes from Paul Krugman. Productivity isn't everything, he said, but in the long run... It's almost everything. We have low productivity in Australia and it's getting lower. What can we do about it? That's next time on The Money. The Money comes to you from Gadigal Land. It's produced by Kate MacDonald. I'm Richard Aidey.
0: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listener.